all of these visible things are going to fail anyway. And so it's a wonderful kind of foreshadowing of how this is really going to end. And it's a wonderful beckoning, a calling to put our hope in something more secure. Hello, friends. Welcome. Thanks for listening. Before we get started today, I just wanted to mention very briefly, we are still raising financial support to try and bring relief and assistance to people living in urban slums in the developing world. COVID-19 is just wreaking tremendous havoc, and it's the poor who are always impacted most profoundly and who suffer the most. So I'm going to put a link in the description. If you want to give and support, that money does not go to me. We're using that money to provide support and relief to people living in urban slums who are affected by COVID-19. So thank you very much for considering and, and for giving, and I appreciate it. In this episode, I wanted to share with you an experience that up to last week I had never had before. But last week, I had to get surgery on my knee. Back in March, I hurt my knee somehow. One day, I I played basketball with my children. I practiced jujitsu with my son. And I spent a couple hours sitting in this kind of low-to-the-ground chair while I did some teaching over Zoom. And the next day when I tried to get out of bed, I, I could barely walk. And my knee was really messed up. Even though the day before, I don't really know, you know, I'd, I'd rather say that I heard it doing jujitsu than I uh, heard it sitting in a chair. But honestly, maybe I just hurt myself sitting in a chair. I have no idea how it happened. But anyway, back in March, my knee was really messed up. It was really painful. I couldn't walk on it. And over time, it just wasn't getting better. And you know, I'm a big believer in healing. I have seen God heal people. God has healed me before. I've seen God use me to heal others, uh, though certainly not as consistently as I would like. But I'm a, you know, I believe in physical healing. And so I was praying and trying to trust God. I even got the opportunity to um, be prayed for and have hands laid on me by a faith healer who's pretty well known and kind of the charismatic healing world, uh, someone that I looked up to and admired, and I got to to go, and he laid hands on me and prayed for me, and uh, you know, it it just didn't get better, and I don't blame him, Uh, it's not his fault, it's not, I, I, you know, I believe that if Jesus were here, he'd heal me, because that's what we see in the Bible, that everyone who approached Jesus for healing got healed, but that uh, at this moment in history, he has chosen to work through his people, through, through me, through his church, through that brother, Faith Healer, and because uh, no one on the earth has yet attained to the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ, so I wasn't healed. And so that's as much my responsibility as anyone else's, and so I don't, I'm not bitter about it, I'm not frustrated with that guy, it, it's just the reality that I haven't matured to the fullness of Christ, and... Um, to this point, I haven't had the honor of meeting anyone in the body of Christ who has. So anyway, I had to go have surgery to get this thing fixed in my knee. And after the surgery, they gave me uh, these really strong opioid painkillers. And so I came back and I was taking these opioids for a couple of days and I had the hiccups almost constantly. I was just hiccuping 
all the time. And so I called my doctor. And of course, when I say I called my doctor in America, everyone knows you can't actually call your doctor, right? So my doctor has a physician's assistant and he has a registered nurse that works with him and he has a scheduler. And of all those people, the only one on the food chain who will actually respond to me is the scheduler, the person who sets his appointments. And even then, I don't actually call that person, I email him. So when I say I call my doctor, what I really mean is I emailed his scheduler. And I said, hey, look, I'm hiccuping all the time. And it's not really a problem, it's just kind of unusual. And so at that point, um, the scheduler emailed me back, and I'll just assume he was you know, talking to the doctor, but either way, he's like, just use the Tylenol from now on. So I moved from this really strong opioid painkiller to just using Tylenol. And when I did that, um, I really became empathetic to why people get hooked on opioid painkillers and opioid addiction. Because when I would take the opioid painkiller, not only did I have zero pain, but I was also in a really good mood. I was just really optimistic really, you know, kind of, they say euphoria is a side effect of the opioids. And I was just really happy, just felt really good, really positive about life and about everything and the surgery and whatever. But when I came off these opioids, um, not only did my knee really hurt and I couldn't walk, but then I was also kind of in a bad mood. I was kind of uh, melancholy and just kind of bummed out. Man, I can't walk. And this maybe was a mistake. I should have never done this and all these things. And so I became really empathetic to why people get hooked on opioids because when you're on them, there's zero pain and you're kind of happy. You feel kind of good. I mean, I had the hiccups for two days straight and I was still in a good mood. So it, it kind of shows you how powerful these opioids are. But the problem of course, with opioids over time is that um, it slows down your body's natural production of endorphins. And so then the same dose of opioids stops triggering all those good feelings and you build up a tolerance to it. And then eventually you need them just to feel normal. And the, the other thing I learned is that uh, opioids, they, they provide relief from pain by, by blocking the pain receptors in your brain. And so what your body does to let you know that there's a problem is your body actually increases the number of pain receptors to try and get the pain signal through to your brain. And so when opioids wear off, a person will actually end up in more pain than they were in originally because the body is still trying to, to communicate to you there's a problem. So these opioids, while they're super effective, they obviously are really dangerous, but I, I can totally see why someone would, would become addicted because if the choice is being in pain and being depressed or having no pain and, and feeling pretty happy just with taking a little pill, it's pretty obvious why that would be so tempting. But anyway, um, I, I stopped taking them and I started using regular Tylenol and I just became really um, bummed out. You know, I was hurting, I couldn't walk, I was discouraged, I was in pain and I just began to feel kind of hopeless. And so in my pain and discouragement and, and pessimism, I just kind of had one of these dark night of the soul experiences. And the, this idea of the dark night of the soul comes from a poem by a 
a man named St. John of the Cross. Now, St. John of the Cross was a Catholic priest who lived from 1542 to 1591. And he wrote this poem. It's not a very long poem, but then he wrote two volumes of um, kind of an explanation or an expounding on the meaning of the verses of this poem that he wrote. And the poem actually wasn't even called The Dark Night of the Soul. It, it, it came to be known as that later. But St. John's poem was actually about mystic union and, and the process of moving towards greater intimacy with the Lord. And, and in his mind, or in the metaphor of this poem, the dark night was moving into this place of mystery, this place of unknown, like joining yourself to the Lord and kind of stepping away from the known um, sort of concrete intellectual things that we cling to and releasing yourself in trust and stepping out into the unknown, into the dark night. And so the poem is really about mystical union. And, and part of that process in his poem was talking about, you know, um, like Romans talks about putting to death the deeds of the flesh or mortifying the deeds of the flesh. But the poem really isn't about suffering, even, even though it does talk about, you know, mortifying the deeds of the flesh, because that certainly is part of our journey of growing in intimacy with the Lord. But over time, this idea of the dark night of the soul has really come to mean going through a spiritual crisis, you know, as it's used kind of in popular spiritual language. When someone has a, a time of doubting or when they don't really have any desire to pray or any desire to read their Bible or to spend time with the Lord or to worship, we might call that a dark night of the soul. Just, you know, when you have questions that you don't feel like are answered or, man, I'm just wondering if God even exists at all. Someone might say that that's going through the dark night of the soul. And so I kind of had one of those moments where I couldn't walk. I just felt bummed out. I felt hopeless. You know, I just felt so useless. And I, I hope having this experience will really make me more empathetic to others because, you know, I've had friends who have been through surgeries and I, and I thought about all the people I knew who have been through such difficult trying medical situations and just how discouraging it really is, just the physical part of it aside. I mean, I was just kind of going through this really minor knee surgery thing, but I've had friends who have been through serious, you know, life endangering medical issues. And just, um, I, I just hope this experience makes me more empathetic to people who are in those situations because it is so discouraging when your body is in pain and, you know, you can become very depressed or melancholy and you don't want to pray and you don't want to really listen to worship music. And I hope having this experience will make me more empathetic and, and more willing to, you know, be, be merciful and, and come alongside people in that situation. But it also began me asking this question of where do I find my consolation? You know, when my, when my flesh, when my body literally fails and there's, there's no hope in the strength of my body. And when, you know, having, buying something or, or, you know, any, any kind of external consolation is of no comfort, really. There's just nothing that that, that really you can find joy in. And so for me, this was a very powerful experience to really ask myself, where do I find my consolation? Where do I find my comfort? And how much of my joy and my um, comfort in life is rooted in physical 
things and and the tangible things that I can touch, taste, see, hear, smell, those physical things. And I think that is actually what this poem, The Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross is about. It's about moving into the mystery and becoming detached from this world and becoming given over to union with Christ, where my union with Christ is where all of my joy is found. And I learn how to find joy in things that are imperishable, that in things that are eternal, but in things that are also immaterial, that they're not, uh, you know, visible with my physical eyes. I can't touch them with my hands. I can't smell them or taste them, that they are uh, immaterial. So I wanted to share with you this quote from the Philokalia. The Philokalia is a uh, collection of texts written between the 4th and 15th century by um, kind of the spiritual leaders of the Eastern Orthodox Church, kind of the uh, spiritual pioneers, if you will, of the Orthodox Church. And listen to this quote. It says, if your intellect is freed from all hope in things visible, this is a sign that sin has died in you. If your intellect is freed, the breach between it and God is eliminated. So, Just one more time, from from the beginning, he says, if your intellect is freed from all hope in things visible. And wow, what a wonderful place that would be to, to arrive at, to mature to, where, you know, I have no hope in anything visible, that all of my hope, all of my joy is secured in Jesus. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in 1563 and is kind of this catechism of reform doctrine and teaching, it begins this way. It says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And that is such an awesome articulation of our hope uh, of what it means to move away from being freed from hope in visible things. That where do we anchor ourselves? Where do we find consolation? Hebrews 6:19 says, "We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure." It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And and the hope he's talking about is that Jesus has made a way for us, that Jesus has reconciled us to God, that we have access to God through Jesus Christ, that that is the hope that is an anchor for our souls. And you know, this hope is really contrary to the Western worldview, like some core values of the Western worldview is that we're, we're going to work hard and attain material wealth and material prosperity, and that will bring us happiness, that will bring us security, that will bring us safety. And so anchoring yourself or, or finding consolation in things that cannot be seen is a real clash 
with our Western worldview that says, no, we need to secure ourselves in the things that can be seen. It's, it's the visible things. It's the accumulation of goods that will bring us joy, that will bring us security. But when there's no consolation in, in buying something, when there's no consolation in eating something, or, or even, you know, even finding consolation in serving God, when I feel like I'm not useful to God, when I can't go out and serve somebody else or do something for other people, I can't find any consolation anywhere. That is really, I think, uh, helpful. It's, it's like a preview of what's coming because eventually all of these visible things are going to fail anyway. And so it's a wonderful kind of foreshadowing of how this is really going to end. And it's a wonderful beckoning, a calling to put our hope in something more secure, to put our hope in something more eternal. And so I think the sooner we can learn to anchor ourselves in the unseen, the happier, the happier we will be. Look with me at Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So this, there's this invitation in the scripture to fix our hope, to, to, to fix our hearts, really, on Christ, to fix our hearts on the eternal. And listen to uh, what uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18 says. It says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So the things that are seen are transient. It means they're just passing through. You know, if, if someone's transient, in, in your city, it means that they're just passing through your city. They don't have a permanent place there. And that's how everything visible is. It's, it's passing away. It's, it's Jesus is making all things new. And our hope is that he is going to make all things, heaven and earth, it's going to be made new. And our hope is to reign with him forever on the new earth with our uh, renewed bodies, with our resurrected bodies. But the things that we see right now are transient. And it's really funny. I love how the NIV uh, translates 2 Corinthians 14. It says, so we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And I, I love the idea of fixing our eyes on what is unseen. It's like, wait a sec. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. I think that's awesome. And, and I think it's worth considering, how do I fix my eyes on what is unseen? And, and I've talked on the podcast before how God has endowed us not only with physical senses, a physical sense of sight and hearing and smell and touch and these things, but God has also endowed us with the spirit that we're made in his image, that we're a spirit being, and we also have spiritual senses, that we have a spiritual sense of sight, that that's what this is talking about. And Paul says that I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Or when Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, and, and so we're talking about spiritual hearing, or when he says that we are the fragrance of Christ to God, that there's this spiritual sense even of smell, or, you know, talking about God touching us, and, and different uh, spiritual ways that we interact with the Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Look with me over at Matthew chapter 6, 
uh, beginning in verse 19 uh, down to verse 21, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I, I think that's really the heart of the matter. That's the beautiful thing that the, the Philokalia is talking about and that the Heidelberg Catechism is talking about, that once my heart is with Christ, my hope is not in the things visible. My, my, my comfort, my consolation is not in these visible things. And so I thank God for going through this experience, this knee surgery that kind of really revealed how much my, my consolation and my hope was invisible things was in my my physical strength or my ability to to do something to walk or to serve god or to do whatever the things i have my heart set on and when those things were taken away that you know it just revealed it's it's great like i said before it's just a great foreshadowing of where all of this is headed uh, because eventually my flesh is going to fail and so if i can learn the earlier i can learn to put my hope in the lord to 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 find my comfort, my consolation, my joy, my peace in the eternal, invisible things, the happier I will be. Look with me at Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations in the Old Testament, beginning in chapter 3, verse 22, going down to verse 27. That says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. And uh, this past week we had a man, Thanos, double slash Kairos uh, Zoom online meeting. And I was asking these young people, why? Why would it say that it's good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young? And I honestly think it's, it's exactly what the Lord has shown me through this little dark night of the soul experience, is that it's so easy to, to, to climb a ladder, to spend all of our energy climbing a ladder that uh, perhaps the, the, the culture or the society has said, hey, if you do these things, if you take these steps, then you'll be happy. And we, we spend a lot of energy climbing this ladder, and then we realize, our ladder was leaning up against the wrong wall. And, and we've ascended to a place that is meaningless. You know, when Paul said that I count all things rubbish compared to the great value of knowing Jesus, that God is inviting us to enjoy eternal life with him. And I'm not suggesting that that means that we all retire to the desert and, and move away and, and live on top of a pillar, a stylite, and isolate ourselves from society. I, I do believe it's times there there are times when it's useful to withdraw from society, even as we see in Jesus. You know, there are times when it is important to go out into the desert and to be alone and to spend time with God. But ultimately we come back and we engage and we're a, a vessel carrying the kingdom of God to the people around us and administrating the rule of God, which is going to be our role for all of eternity. So I believe we begin to engage in that role even now. So I'm not suggesting when I say that our hope you know, is only in things invisible that we 
uh, need to kind of withdraw from society, but I am saying that we become actually more valuable in society as we are anchored in the things that are invisible. And so how can we learn to delight in simply belonging to God and simply being God's child? When the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I belong, body and soul and life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood. That this is where we're anchored. This is where we're secure in our union with Christ. Let me go back to that Philo Kalia quote one more time. And I'm just going to read the beginning and then I'm going to read a little bit after that. It says, if your intellect is freed from all hope in things visible. This is a sign that sin has died in you. If your intellect is freed, the breach between it and God is eliminated. If your intellect is freed from all its enemies and attains the Sabbath rest, it lives in another age, a new age in which it contemplates things new and undecaying. And that's exactly what Colossians chapter 1 was telling us. It says, set your mind on the things above. Your, your life is now hidden in Christ. We live from heaven. We don't live from the earth. Our life source is not this beating heart in my chest. My life source is the Holy Spirit who animates and gives life to my flesh. The Holy Spirit animates my life. He is my life source. And so, since then, my life is hidden in Christ. I set my mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth. And, and so, that's what it's talking about. It says, we, we live in another age, a new age, the age where Christ reigns perfectly, and it contemplates things new and undecaying. And so, I would just invite you, what we did in our Friday meeting with uh, Manthanos, double slash Kairos, with these young people, is that we, we pretended as if we were a spiritual director for another person. And we wrote out what could possibly be a spiritual exercise that would help someone that we, if, if there was someone that we were responsible for discipling, we were responsible for trying to bring them on in maturity, what exercises could we develop that would help someone learn to delight in the invisible. And that's what these mystics were talking about. That's what, you know, the dark night of the soul, St. John of the Cross, that's what Teresa of Avila, when uh, she's talking about the interior castle, that we're learning to move toward intimacy with Jesus and finding the unspeakable, undescribable, eternal, everlasting joy, the eternal pleasure, like Psalm 1611 says, at your right hand are pleasures everlasting, that eternal pleasure of dwelling in God's presence and being near to him and being connected with him. So for our, our exercise in Manthanos, double slash Kairos, that's this uh, group of young people, um, we developed and we wrote out spiritual exercises for one another and we gave them to each other. And so I would just encourage you to spend some time thinking, you know what, how can I structure a, a moment of my day that will help me fix my hope on the invisible, on things eternal, that will help me delight in the invisible, that will help me uh, find my only consolation, my only comfort is that I belong to Jesus Christ in life and in death. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you.
that blows And every string that flows we hear Your tenderness And every star that glows And every cell that grows It's clear Your excellence God, you're beautiful You're so beautiful 